We are a people of remembrance. And when I say we, I mean people, all people. We remember to reflect and to celebrate. Birthdays are annual reminders of the birth of loved ones. Wedding anniversaries, when we remember them, are the annual reminders of when two became one in the holy, sacred bond of matrimony. Funerals are known as memorial services. In memoriam is Latin for in memory of. We remember the memory of our lost loved ones. Even holidays, most holidays commemorate significant figures or events in history, like the greatest of all holidays, May 4th, Star Wars Day. <laughs> May the 4th be with you. See, that's both a Star Wars reference, which I appreciate as a nerd, and a dad joke. Like, that is perfection right there. Or maybe more somber reflections like 9-11. When I say the word September 11th, you immediately have a preconceived notion that pops in your mind, don't you? Because that is a date that will live in infamy. It changed the world forever. In fact, over the last 20 plus years, every year on the anniversary, the slogan is never forget, never forget, remember, remember. And God wants us to never forget particular things. We are a people of remembrance because God is a God of remembrance. He wants us to remember specific things that he outlines in scripture. We look to the past to inform the present, which gives hope for the future. So God is a God of remembrance, so we look to his faithfulness in the past to guide and motivate us in the present, which gives hope for the future. We look back to look ahead with faith. Never forget, remember. Now pastors love superlatives. We love to say this passage we're looking at today is the most fill-in-the-blank passage in all the Bible. But today's passage really is one of the most clear-cut, powerful signs in the Old Testament that points to Jesus in the New Testament. It's so good. And I, my, my prayer, my goal is I want you to be in awe of our God. I want you to just say, God, what a mighty God we serve. It's so clear, Lord. I want you to see the unmistakable foreshadowing and glory of Jesus in the Passover, so much so that you're like, you would have to be spiritually blinded to miss this. And indeed, some are. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the gospel of the glory of Jesus. So my goal is to tackle this passage in a way that you see the gospel of the glory of Jesus. Let those blinders fall off. So, turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 11. We're continuing in our series in the life of Moses. Now, as a recap, God appoints this man, Moses, his servant, who was a Hebrew man adopted by Egyptian royalty, and he appoints him to lead his people out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. And he does so by God's power to God's glory through these great acts of judgment, which we know as the plagues. And they, God does these things so that they would know 
that I am the Lord. He says that a lot, so that you may know that I am the Lord. That you may know that I alone am Yahweh. I alone am God. There is no one and nothing who is holy and awesome like him. And so they go through these plagues, and after the ninth plague of darkness, Moses appears before Pharaoh, as he often did, and Pharaoh says, Moses, I never want you to see my face again. If you see my face again, you will die. I've had enough. I will kill you. Moses says, fine, have it your way. But on his way out, he says, oh, wait, uh, but one more thing before I go. And this one's a big one. This one's a doozy. And that's where we pick up in chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. And so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord has made a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these servants, the Egyptian servants, shall come down to me, Moses, and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. I mean, he is angry, incensed. Pharaoh, you have brought this upon yourself because of your stupid, stubborn pride. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So the stage is set. God had been performing these great signs and wonders among the Egyptians and the Israelites, but every time Pharaoh's heart was hardened, he refused to budge in his stupid, stubborn pride. See, Pharaoh is the image of rebellious, self-righteous man that rejects God and opposes God. So you have this battle royale between self-righteous, rebellious man who rejects God and the one true God, and they are duking it out. Now, I am not a betting man, but if I was, I would be putting all my chips in on God because the Lord never loses. In the first nine plagues, each plague deliberately grows in intensity. There's a crescendo. They're building in, it, in, in anticipation to the climax of the 10th plague, the one that would break Pharaoh's rebellious resolve, the one that would shatter the shell around his heart. This is the one that Pharaoh would finally consent to allow the people to leave. No qualifications, no addendums, no conditions. 
In fact, he would usher them out completely, and not a single dog would bark at them as they're leaving. Which, those of you who are dog owners, you know that's significant, especially if you have those little tiny yappy dogs that bark at everything, yap, 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 right? For a dog to not, I mean, you know when you're, you're an owner of the dog and you look at the dog like this and they know they're in trouble, they, right? They, they, they're quiet and they bow down. This is what's going on. The dogs, the animals bow in submission as the Israelites are leaving because they recognize the authority of God on them, the hand of God on this people. So the people of Israel go from being despised and hated by the Egyptians, downtrodden in their slavery, to being favored and respected, feared and revered. What happened? What caused this change of heart? What caused the disposition change in the Egyptians and in Pharaoh? Well, it's the 10th plague, the most intense of all the plagues yet. C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And oh, how true that is. I'm willing to bet that you never pay attention to your pinky toe. Sometimes we even forget we have a pinky toe. You know the only time you ever give attention to your pinky toe? It's in the middle of the night, you're sleeping, you get up, you gotta go to the restroom, the hallway is dark, and as you're walking there, you stub your pinky toe against a corner of a wall or against furniture, and you're like, ah! right? Now your pinky toe has your attention because pain works. Pain grabs our attention. Now listen, I'm not saying that every time we go through pain and suffering that God is using that to grab our attention, but sometimes he does because it works. Pain grabs our attention and it got their attention. But this final plague would be different. See, the previous ones afflicted the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. There was this holy distinction between God's people and those who rejected him. And so the Egyptians were afflicted, but the Israelites were spared. But this time, now, God would strike down all firstborns unless a provision was made to spare them. See, the truth is that the Israelites were no better than the Egyptians. They weren't greater. They weren't, they weren't more moral It's not like they earned God's favor and mercy. It's not like they deserved it, though they were God's chosen people. They were sinners too. In fact, in Ezekiel 20, it says that the people of Israel, while they were in Egypt, worshiped the gods of Egypt. They were idolatrous. And God cannot turn his back on sin. He cannot wink at sin. He cannot ignore sin. He has to deal with sin because he is just and righteous and holy. Every firstborn human and livestock, from servant to royalty, would die unless a provision was made. Death is the natural consequence for all humanity because of our sinful rebellion. There are no innocent people in our world. Despite what people say, there are no innocent people, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. The fact that God spares any of us when we have rejected God, when we have rebelled against God, the fact that he spares any of us in his mercy and grace, that's what we should be in awe of. God is holy and just, but he is also merciful and gracious and forgiving and compassionate to allow a means 
to provide a means of deliverance. It is God's kindness that brings us to repentance. So God's people are spared from his wrath, and they experience God's glory in his mercy. And those who reject God face his wrath, and they experience God's glory in his justice. And this holy distinction between God's people and those who are not God's people is what leads us to the Passover. So look at chapter 12. First thing I want to note is God is not, not the God of coincidence. There's no such thing as coincidence. If someone says, oh, it's such a coincidence that I ran into you. No, it's not. There's no such thing as coincidence. God is not the God of coincidence. Everything God does is deliberate. Everything he does, he does with intentionality. So everything we see here, every detail is here for a reason. And this event, this Passover Passover event was so significant that it reoriented the Hebrew calendar. God says, I want the Hebrew calendar from now on to start with the month of Aviv, the month of Passover, because it's that important. God even links their measuring of time to his calling on their lives. Look at verse 14. He says, this day shall be for you a memorial day. Again, there it is, remember, memorial, remember. What is not carefully remembered in a community is so easily forgotten. So what do we remember? We remember that God is our deliverer. So throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, God refers to himself as the one who freed you from Egypt. He goes, hey, hey remember, remember how I gave you liberty from your captives? Remember how I set you free from Israel? Do you, do you remember my faithfulness in the past? Over and over, he reminds them of this memorial day, this new birthday, if you will, this celebration. So I, I've been told that people who receive an organ donation, maybe a kidney, or bone marrow, and they're in just dire straits in a medical condition, they have to have an organ transplant. When they receive that transplant from a donor, they're given a new birthday. They're not just given a new lease on life, they are given new life. Because without that organ transplant, they would probably die. And and God is saying here, this is so significant, I'm not just giving you a new lease on life, I'm giving you new life. This is like a new birthday for you. You have new life. He says, keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. So pass it on to younger generations. Explain it to your kids and your grandkids. This is generational discipleship so that they never forget. Never forget. Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, once said that freedom is never more than a generation away from being extinct. Now, is that true? I don't know. But if it's true of freedom, is it true of faith? We know that the church, the capital C church, the big church, the global church will never die. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. But you look at statistically, younger and younger generations are turning away from God and want nothing to do with him, don't believe in him. Folks, are we leaving a legacy of faith? Are we helping them remember God and helping them never forget So, what were they to do in the Passover? Well, look at the text. A man from every household was to take a one-year-old male lamb from their household, representing their family. 
So this baby sheep, they were to take into their household. Now, those of you who have kids, you know, we have a couple little ones, you know that if you bring in a, a baby animal into your house, your kids are going to love on that animal, they're going to hug it around the neck, they're going to pet it, they're going to name it. It becomes one of the family, and that's the whole idea, because the lamb was to be a lamb from among them. They would take this lamb and they would set it aside on the 10th day of the month of Aviv. And in the days between the 10th and the 14th day, the family would examine the lamb. They would watch it, they would guard it, they would scrutinize it to make sure it was without defect, which leads to the next thing, the lamb needed to be without blemish. Perfect, whole, pure, spotless. No physical abnormalities, no scars, no spots, without defect, without blemishes. It had to be perfect. And then look at verse 46. You shall not break any of the bones of that lamb. We'll get to that in a second. And then back in verse 11, God says, this is the Lord's Passover. It's the Hebrew word Pesach. Pesach means Passover. It's this verb that means a passing over, a jumping over, a leaping over. But here, it refers to the Passover lamb. Literally, God is saying it is a Passover lamb sacrifice for Yahweh, for me. So it was provided by Yahweh for, for Yahweh. It was provided by God for God. There is a demand on all of us to abate God's wrath, but it is a just demand that we can never meet. A righteous demand we could never satisfy, and God knows that. And so he provides the means to satisfy that wrath. Well, then on the 14th day, around dusk, the people of Israel would kill these lambs. It's a theological concept we call substitutionary atonement. Now, that is a mouthful. It's a big couple of words. So let's break it down. Atonement is to pay restitution for a wrongdoing. You're atoning for a sin, atoning for a wrongdoing. And substitutionary means someone is doing it in your place. So these lambs took their place a lamb from among them would give his life for theirs. They must never forget that their life came from the death of another, a life for a life. Specifically, the death of the Passover lamb was sparing the firstborns who were consecrated, who were set apart for the Lord. And then they were to take the blood. Now, this is kind of gross. This is a little gory, but they were to cut the lamb and drain all the blood into a basin, into a bowl. And the blood of that lamb was a sign of protection and redemption. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Why blood? Now, is there, are there magical properties with blood? Is it some hocus pocus? No. Blood is a sign for life. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And they would take this blood, and verse 22 says they would get a hyssop plant, which is a common herb plant there. It's a flowery purple plant. You can Google it later to see what it looks like. They would take the branches of that plant, dip it in the bowl, and paint the blood on the doorway. 
placing the blood on the lintel, the horizontal beam, and the vertical beams of the doorway, painting it across. Now put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in their sandals. This would seem a little nuts, right? Moses, you want us to do what? God said what? Okay, this sounds like cuckoo town. Like, are you serious? Okay, so you want us to take a lamb, love on that lamb, protect the lamb, watch the lamb, examine the lamb, perfect lamb, for several days. Oh, and then we're to kill the lamb, drain its blood into a bowl, and you want us to take a plant, like a paintbrush, and paint it over the door? What? But there's no notion of them pushing back on this. Don't miss this. There was a measure of faith here, so important. They trusted in God's provision to protect them. It was an act of faith by God, or an act of faith toward God through the blood. They trusted in God through his provision of the applied blood. Folks, do not miss that. Faith is vital here to the Passover. So the Passover meal had three elements, roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. Now, why bitter herbs? Well, I don't know if you've ever taken a bite of horseradish. I don't mean like mixed with steak sauce on a good steak. I mean a big gulp of horseradish. It's like wasabi. It's going to bring tears to your eyes. And the speculation is that's the point. God wanted tears to come to their eyes as they remembered as they thought about the bitterness of bondage, the suffering of slavery. And then they would take unleavened bread called matzah. Now there is strong language in the text for not even having leaven or yeast in the house from the 14th day to the 21st day, known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You could not even have yeast leaven in the house. Why? Well, because leaven represented sin. Leaven represented corruption. Jesus says in Matthew 16, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware of their false self-righteous teachings. So this is, leaven represented anything that was displeasing to God because God purifies us through the blood of the lamb. So they were to rid their house of all leaven during those days, all yeast. And the man of the household, usually the father, would take the matzah bread and he would break it and he would distribute it to those who were in the household. So you had roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. And then they were to eat all of the lamb. And anything that didn't get consumed, they had to burn up. It had to be used up. We'll get to that in a second. And they were to eat in haste. They're not wearing nightgown. They're not wearing PJs. They had to wear their travel clothes, ready to depart on a journey at a moment's notice. Now look at verse 12. God says, I will pass through Egypt. I will execute judgment. I will strike down the firstborn. But if I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you and no plague will destroy you. You will be spared. I will do this. God is saying, I am going to go in the midst of Egypt and I will execute judgment. But if I see the blood of the lamb, that's the provision that will spare you. God spares Israel, not because they're better than Egypt, but because of a spotless lamb that died in their place and its blood covers the door. Now look at verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and he said to them, 
Go and select lambs for yourselves among, according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in blood in the basin, touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and he will not allow the destroyer, don't miss this, he will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you will keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why do we do this? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and what? Worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and they did so just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Moses gives the leaders of Israel all these instructions. But look at verse 23. When the Lord sees the blood, he will pass over you and your household. That blood will purify the doorway to allow for God's presence. But notice what it says. And, and the Lord will not allow the destroyer to enter your house. So not only does he pass over, but he protects. He passes over and protects in Psalm 78, when it describes this scene, it, it talks about a company of destroying angels. So I believe God sent out an army of angels of death, if you will, all throughout the land of Egypt. And when, when he would come upon a door with the blood of the lamb, God would say, no, 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 no. This is under my protection. Pass over it. This is mine. They belong to me. They are mine. You shall not pass. They're under my protection because of the blood. And after Moses gives these people the instructions, they bowed their heads and worshiped. And they did as the Lord commanded. Folks, there is so much here. And there is so much Passover lamb language throughout the Bible that links to the Messiah. I mean, it's unmistakable. You can't miss it. Isaiah 53, 6 and 7, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a, what? Lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. John 1, John the baptizer is baptizing people, and it says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He says, behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying Jesus is the Passover Lamb. That's him. He's the one. He's the one that purifies us and cleanses us of our sins. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven. Remember, leaven represents sin, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So he's saying don't tolerate sin in your lives. God, through the, through the Passover lamb, God has purified you. And, and notice what it says. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So again, Passover imagery, leaven and lamb, sin and Jesus. And what Christ has done on the cross as our Passover lamb should influence the way we live. Don't tolerate sin in your life is what he's saying. First Peter 1. 
Peter writes, you were ransomed, you were redeemed from the feudal ways of life, from sin inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with imperishable, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then Revelation 12, 11, I love this. Do you know how we defeat Satan? Do you know how we have victory and overcome our enemy? Look, look what it says. They have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. That's good news. Through Jesus, we have victory, folks. Amen. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Let me say it one more time. Jesus is our Passover lamb. So they were to take a lamb from among us. Now let's look at several things. Remember, God is a God of deliberate detail. Everything in here, he has for a reason. So they were to take a, to take a lamb from among them, to select a lamb and let it dwell among them. Jesus is a lamb from among us. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. He was a lamb from among us. And he was a lamb without blemish. They were to take a lamb that was spotless, without defect, unblemished. Jesus is perfect, sinless, without iniquity, without transgression. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. They were to take the lamb chosen and set aside on the 10th day of Aviv, Guess what? Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem on what day? The 10th day. Like, this is uncanny. It's Palm Sunday. It's what we celebrate next Sunday. That's when Jesus rode in the week that he would be crucified. He was chosen by God and set aside on the 10th day as the lamb. And then he was killed. The lambs were killed on the 14th day. What day do you think Jesus was killed? On the 14th day. Jesus begins his road to Calvary exactly four days after Palm Sunday as he took the Passover meal with his disciples, and then he goes immediately to Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is betrayed, arrested, tried, beaten, and carries his cross up to Golgotha where he is crucified. And as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered, there Jesus gave his life. See, those days between the 10th and 14th day, remember they were to examine the lamb, make sure it was without spot and blemish. What were they doing with Jesus? They were examining him, especially as he stood trial. They're lobbing all kinds of accusations against him, all kinds of false insults and things. They're, they're, they're even having false testimonies, but their testimonies won't corroborate. Do you know why? Because he's a pure, spotless lamb. He's perfect. Nothing was sticking to him. His bones would not be broken. John 19, 36 says not one of Jesus' bones were broken, which is significant because the Roman soldiers, when people were crucified, listen, when someone was crucified, they were not, they didn't die of blunt force trauma. They didn't die of blood loss. They died of asphyxiation, suffocation. So they had a nail in their feet, nails in their hands, and they would push off on the nail in their feet, push up, pull up with the nails in their wrists. And so to expedite the death, Roman soldiers would break their legs so they could no longer push up to get that breath. 
When they came upon Jesus, they looked at him and they saw he's already dead. And his bones were not broken. And then we have the blood of the lamb, the means of protection and deliverance and redemption. We, in the New Testament, we see the word propitiation, which is a fancy word for on the cross, Jesus was the wrath of God's sponge. He absorbed all the wrath of God so we don't have to. God's just wrath that we deserve passes over us because the lamb took it all. So just imagine on the doorpost of your heart, all the sins you've ever committed, written on, you know, with permanent Sharpie, fear, worry, lust, theft, greed, gossip, uh, let's write bitterness over here, anger, uh, malice, jealousy, you know, we can go on and on, all these sins that are screaming out accusations against us that we just can't forget, and then there's this red paint, the coat of the blood of the lamb dipped and painted over all these sins, so they're no longer crying out accusations, but they're now covered by the blood. You can't see them anymore. Our sins are covered by the blood. So that God, who is the God of remembrance, does not remember our sins anymore. They are forgotten, folks. Is that good news? It's so good. David Murray says, look at that blood until you grasp how precious and effective it is. There's absolutely no reason to have even one whisper of guilt. You must believe that your sins are paid for and pardoned. But the blood was not just there. They didn't just set a bucket of blood in front of the door and like, okay, that's it. It had to be applied. It had to be applied to the doorway. And folks, the blood of Jesus has to be applied by faith to the doorposts and lintels of our hearts if we want to be saved from the bondage of sin and the shackles of death. And then they were to use all of the lamb, all of it. Now, the speculation is, scholars believe, why did they have to use all of the lamb? Because it's all or nothing with Jesus. He gave his all. Do you know how much grace you have in Jesus? All of it! <laughs> how much mercy do you have? All of it! We have all the love and grace and mercy from God that we ever need because of the blood of the lamb. <laughs> Because Jesus gave his all, it was all or nothing with him, and so he needs to be, he should be Lord of our all. He's not Lord of some, he's Lord of all. It's all of the lamb. And notice he, God, provided the lamb. Jesus is the Lord's Passover lamb provided by God for God because we could never make atonement for ourselves. And then finally, it's a statute forever. This is eternal atonement. It's a once for all time sacrifice, one and done. Jesus doesn't need to be crucified over and over every year, every Passover. It's one and done, folks. And so the result of the Passover lamb, lamb atonement, deliverance from death, freedom from bitter bondage to sin. No wonder the people worshiped 
Christ is our Passover. And that's the point this morning, folks. The blood of the Lamb allows the just wrath of God to pass over those who trust in Him.